Can I ask you to take a seat and to reach for a Bible and uh, turn, if it's in one of ours, to page 775, page 775. We've been working our way through the book of Jonah for the last uh, month or so, and uh, we get to chapter 4 tonight. So I'm going to lead us in prayer and then read to us. Our great Father, we want to thank you that you are indeed the God of steadfast love and compassion. And we pray for each one gathered here tonight that you would help us to know your love, to know your compassion. And we pray that you might fill our hearts with it in such a way that your compassion and love then overflows from us to others too, we pray. So teach us from your word now and change us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to us Jonah chapter 4. We've just um, read in chapter 3, if you've not been with us, about one of the greatest urban revivals in history. 120,000 people uh, became Christians in no time at all. And this is what happened next. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. It would be great if you could keep that open. Uh, in front of you, there's also an outline on the back of the notice sheet as well. Now, um, one of the lessons that we've been reminded of as we go through Jonah is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's one of the big themes I've said of the whole book, and it reminds us of an enormous theme that runs through the whole Bible itself, which is that the, the great evangelist, if I can put it that way, of the Bible is God himself. So ever since the beginning of the Bible, it's been his plan that in and through his son Jesus, 
his blessing, his life, his love would spread right to the ends of the earth. He said to Abraham back in the first book of the Bible, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When he saved his people Israel, he said to them, you, this nation, this one nation, shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And their role was to make him known to all the nations. They failed, so he promised that one day he would send a servant into the world who would be a light to the nations. Again, so that his revelation might reach all the way to the ends of the earth. He also promised a son, a king, who would graciously reign over all the peoples of the earth for all time and bless them. And so Jesus came, the son of Abraham, the servant king, and when he was born, foreign dignitaries came from afar to worship him, the wise men we remember at Christmas. In his death, he drew to himself people from every nation. After his resurrection, he then commissioned his church to go and make disciples of every nation. At Pentecost, he poured out his Holy Spirit to empower our witness to the ends of the earth. Because God has no favorites. His desire is for all peoples, all of us, to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So he is, as I'm putting it, the great evangelist. The Bible finishes with a a wonderful vision of a multitude that no one can count. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of millions gathered from every nation, tribe, people, and language, praising Jesus as Lord. So we've all seen pictures on our screens, on our phones, of incredible carnivals. Maybe in Rio de Janeiro or Sydney, we've seen festivals like Glastonbury. And God's purpose is a a heavenly banquet that will be a party like no other. The crowds will be bigger, the diversity will be greater, the joy will be deeper by far than any of those great parties on earth. Because God will be there, and he will personally, we're told, wipe away every tear and swallow up the shroud of death forever. And this multinational people will be his people, and he will be our God. So that is the great plan to which our great God is working in the world. It's our privilege as churches, as Christians, to have been commissioned to to play a part in that. The Apostle Paul urged us to be all things to all people so that by all possible means some might come to know Jesus for themselves. We know the fear of the Lord, so we seek to persuade others. We set forth the truth lovingly and plainly because we know that God loves to take even our feeble efforts, our feeble words, our desire to invite people to some carol services and to use them to bring life. There is no work more fulfilling or more exciting than that. The the great sadness, of course, is that all too often as churches we can get distracted from that work. We can even be disobedient to our great commission from God. In that sense, we're a bit like Jonah because we've been meeting him over the last few weeks. He's someone that was so outraged, we'll see this evening, by this idea that God might want to save people who don't deserve it that he wanted to die. This final chapter of the book is a contrast between Jonah and God. 
And so we're going to look at it under the two headings on the sheet. And first we meet the angry heart of Jonah. Uh, you remember the dramatic scenes I said from uh, chapter 3, all of these people becoming Christians. Um, preachers always long for their words to have an impact. Um, I, I don't set my sights too high. I usually settle for the majority of you staying awake. I know that's more of a challenge for one or two here than for others. But when Jonah preached, people actually paid attention. It was great. And this entire city turned back to him in repentance and faith from the greatest of them down to the least. And we know from Jesus that when just one person repents, when they turn away from a life of sin, when they turn back to God, God, there is great rejoicing in heaven. So multiply that kind of celebration by 120,000 and then meet Jonah in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger. You abound in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The text says literally that Jonah was displeased with great displeasure. And there's a, another play on words, because the, the word destruction up in um, chapter 3, verse 10, or disaster, and the, this word um, displeased in verse 1 of chapter 4 are the same. So you can say something like, disaster is averted for Nineveh, and Jonah finds the idea disastrous. Or the Ninevites turn from evil, and Jonah thinks the whole thing is evil. So he prays. And just like his prayer in chapter 2, it's full of eyes and me's and my's. There are eight in our translation, because even after his rescue with the great fish, Jonah is this proud and self-obsessed kind of guy, and he's seething with rage, isn't he? He's saying, you see, God, I was right. This is why I was so quick to run away to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that if I turned up and preached in Nineveh in the way that you've told me to, I knew that you wouldn't punish them because that's just what you're like. You relent from disaster. You're gracious. You're slow to anger. You abound in love. And it makes me sick. I would rather die than watch those people be saved. Uh, often when people get angry at God, uh, I find it's because they're ignorant of God. It's because they don't know what he's like. But this is the second time that Jonah's theology has been impeccable. He knows exactly what God is like. In um, chapter 1, verse 9, he affirmed God's sovereignty. Do you remember he said, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now he quotes from our reading in Exodus 34, all about God's gracious love. Uh, you put those two statements together, you get the big theological message of the book, salvation belongs to the Lord. Our sovereign God does whatever he pleases, and what pleases him is saving lost sinners. But Jonah's having none of it. Why do you think he's so upset with this idea of God saving people? Uh, just before we jump down his throat, we need to, I guess, remember what the Ninevites were like. Maybe that's what Jonah was doing. This was a a city, they were, they were infamous for their violence and bloodshed. 
when their armies attacked people, they had a policy of slaughtering all their hostages, of butchering their defeated soldiers. They would burn innocent children. And I guess Jonah didn't want God to go soft on sin. So he was happy for God to save him, Jonah, but he didn't want God's grace to extend to really bad people like the Ninevites. Uh, Jonah's attitude is undoubtedly extreme. It's almost a caricature. But you know, there are some real similarities between what's going on in Jonah's heart and what was going on in the heart of the rest of the people of Israel at the time, like we've been seeing. Like Jonah, God had saved Israel by grace. Like Jonah, he dealt patiently with them and given them enormous spiritual privilege. Like Jonah, they were very complacent and exclusivist. They didn't look at the nations with compassion around them. They looked at them with self-righteous pride. They thought they were better than them just because they were a people of faith. It's an attitude you see in the, the Pharisees of the New Testament as well. They said, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he want to hang out with them? And they hated it when he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, people who think they're good enough for God. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Or if you remember Jesus's parable of the brother who, uh, the, the prodigal son who goes off and there's the older brother there and the father represents God and to his great delight, this prodigal son finally comes home. And so the father goes over the top in welcoming back. He puts a ring on his finger, he puts a robe on his back, and he kills the fattened calf, and he throws a big party because he says, my son was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's fine. And, and you would think that the elder brother would be sharing in the father's delight. But just like Jonah, he's angry, and he refuses to celebrate. His father even came out and begged him to come in, but he wouldn't. That's how much he resented the father extending his love to someone who in his eyes had done nothing to deserve it. And you'll have to tell me if you reckon that that attitude is around today. My own hunch is that it, it is there a little bit. I think it's probably more common than we might think. It's there in the world around us. Um, have you ever had this experience? I've had it a number of times of explaining to someone. People ask, you know, how does someone become a Christian? What does that mean? And it's a privilege to be able to explain that becoming a Christian, salvation isn't about some work that we have to do as though we're trying to impress God with our good deeds or our religious works. It's instead about what Christ has done on the cross and that God's grace is big enough that he's willing to forgive anyone who would come back to him and receive his love and recognize Jesus as Lord. But then people sometimes say, but so are you saying that if a murderer is just about to die and then he prays sincerely, oh Lord, have mercy on my soul, that God would forgive even a murderer? And if you say, yes, God's grace is that big. Just like Jesus said to the thief on the cross beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, more than once people I've been chatting to have found the idea absolutely abhorrent. Maybe you feel 
similar about it. Someone once stormed out of the room when I was trying to explain it. And the attitude underneath when they calmed down and we were chatting, I can see why God would forgive deserving people like me, but not people like them. And that desire to split people into to two groups, some who deserve or could earn God's love, and some who should be excluded from it forever, well, that's Jonah all over. And depressingly, it, it, this same attitude, I think, is found inside the church as well. Uh, a woman walked into a church that I know. Uh, she was pretty notorious in the town. She was about as far from God as she could be. Her life was, was full of pretty public sin and wrongdoing. And one elder turned to another elder in the church and said, we don't want people like that in here. Now, you would think that that would be an impossible attitude to find in church, wouldn't you? That surely no church, if they knew anything of what God's heart is like, it would be impossible, wouldn't it, for a church ever to be so inaccessible and unwelcoming to their community that they would effectively pull up the drawbridge and make it virtually impossible for people who hadn't been reared in the faith since birth to, to come in. No church could ever be like that, surely. You know, off the street walks a serial adulterer or a benefits cheat or a single teenage mum or an alcoholic or someone from a different race or class or religious background or someone who has enormous psychological problems. I'm sure any church would welcome them into our midst and invite them into our homes and pour out our life into them and invest in them and show to them the very same love that God has shown to us. What do you make of God's question in verse 4? I think it's a pretty good one for his church in every age. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well? you think to be self-righteous proud judgmental to look down on people who don't believe or could you be more like your god let's turn then to the loving heart of god our second major heading and then by verse five Jonah has had enough of god so he goes out of the city uh, and says, sat down to the east of the city, and there he makes a booth for himself. And as you read, you see he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the, the city. He's, he's counting down the 40 days. Do you remember the warning, 40 days and you'll be destroyed? And Jonah, it seems, still is waiting and hoping that God might destroy Nineveh after all. As readers, we know it's not going to happen. They've repented. God has relented. He loves saving people, but Jonah isn't so sure, and so he's waiting. Fingers crossed. And uh, there again, there's a play on words here. He makes a booth. That's interesting. Uh, Israel had a feast of booths in the Old Testament. It was a time when they stopped every year to give thanks to God for the salvation that he'd given to them, even though they didn't deserve it. But Jonah gives his, uh, builds his booth not to celebrate undeserved salvation but because he wants a ringside seat 
in the event of Nineveh's destruction. And again, it's another one of Jonah's temper tantrums. We're used to them by now. God could just have washed his hands of Jonah. But in his patience, in his love, he wants to, he wants to teach Jonah. And so he enrolls him for a class in the Nineveh School of Theology. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Um, you learn a lot about someone, don't you? you? You know this from what makes them super happy and what makes them super angry. Well, this is the first time in the whole book that Jonah has rejoiced with joy. And it's not because of revival in Nineveh, but because he's got a sunshade. Uh, verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. So you've got these enormous fluctuations in Jonah's emotions. When the plant can give him some comfort, he's super happy. When it's taken away, he'd rather die because with him, it is all about me, 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 and me. And maybe like me, you can see a glimpse of yourself in Jonah, this kind of one-eyed concentration on his own comfort, his own will. And when God's doing what he wants, he's happy. But if God ever dares to do something different, then his world comes to an end. One writer penned this challenging sentence, the smallest pain in our little finger can give us more concern than the destruction of millions of our fellow human beings. So the city and the plant are like opposites. When the city is spared, Jonah wants to die. The plant is destroyed, he wants to die again. Because it, it doesn't matter what God does. Jonah knows better. He will not let God be God. So you've got this weird thing going on where there's a guy who is saying... I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. But in his heart, he wants to call the shots. So again, when God is doing what Jonah wants, it's all, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, 10,000 reasons for my heart to sing. And when God is not doing what Jonah wants, it's woe is me. Uh, God asks in Romans 9, who are you? Oh, mankind, to answer back to God. Uh, he's the potter with a clay. It's up to him how he runs the world, not us. He said to Moses once, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And one of the lessons of Jonah is that it's not our job to tell God what he should be doing. It's our job to submit to God God and to bring our hearts into line with his. And God is determined to get through to Jonah. So just as he appointed um, that word of fish in chapter one, now he appoints a plant and then a worm and then a scorching east wind to turn up the heat before in verse nine he repeats the question of verse four, do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. They're Jonah's last words in the, the whole book. Um, prophets were heralds of the words of life. And Jonah's final word is death. But the very final word goes to God himself, as it always does. Verse 10, the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? At three points of contrast, you'll see them. One, Jonah had done nothing for the plant. He hadn't planted it or tended it or made it grow. Each of the Ninevites uh, made personally by the creator God in his own image. Even the cattle owed their life to God. Two, second, the plant lived for just 24 hours. The people of Nineveh had eternal souls. Finally, there's just one plant and there's 120,000 Ninevites. But for all that, Jonah's self-interest is so ingrained that he has a deeper emotional attachment to a plant than for the spiritual well-being of 120,000 Ninevites. And so God asks him, Jonah, do you not think I should pity them? And the question behind the question, Jonah, do you not think that maybe you should pity them as well? There aren't many Bible books that end with a question. Uh, this one does. And we're never told how Jonah replied. That's pretty deliberate. I'm sure he did learn his lesson. Uh, in the Gospels, even after all of this, you know, Jesus calls Jonah great. So I take it that this whole book is at past to at least a public statement of Jonah's repentance. He did learn his lesson, and he wrote it up so that we would learn it too. And by closing the book with a question, Jonah's inviting us as readers to reflect on our own hearts and in some sense to write our own ending to the book. Where do we go from here? Uh, the poet Thomas Carlyle wrote of verses 6 to 11, Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around to God's way of loving. Because Jonah, having learned his lesson, wanted his people Israel to love like God did. Their, their knee-jerk reaction would be to say, no, God, the Ninevites are idolaters, you shouldn't pity them. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mentioned that the quote comes from Exodus 34 up in verse 2, as we saw. What was happening in, verse, in um, Exodus 34 when God revealed to Moses that he was a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Answer, well, Israel had just been in the middle of worshipping a golden calf, committing idolatry. And what was happening in Israel at the time of Jonah? Answer, 
They were walking in the sins of Jeroboam. They themselves were guilty of idolatry all over again. Idolatry was like Israel's Achilles heel. They seemed congenitally incapable of leaving it behind. And yet in all of that time, God remained incredibly patient with them. He said through the prophet Hosea, how can I give up on you, O Israel? My heart churns within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And Israel, it seems, was all for God having compassion on them in their idolatry and sin. But they had no interest in, showing, in God showing the same compassion and patience to the nations. And God included Jonah in their Bibles to ask them, should I not have pity on the nations? And if I do, maybe you should as well. Well, what of us? We said um, a few weeks ago that Jonah is a mirror. We will see ourselves in Jonah. That's one of the clever things about the way that it's written. The question is whether we see ourselves in Jonah's own angry, righteous, self-righteous judgmentalism. Or we see ourselves in the, the Father's tender compassion for the lost. Friends, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. He once um, wrote something called A Vision for the Lost. I thought I'd end with it. Um, it it's, it's pretty emotive, so I actually hesitate to use it. Um, it. It may be a bit too strong for some of us, but sometimes I find I need a reminder like this, and you can tell me later what you make of it. So William Booth wrote um, of a vision that he had one night. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. And in that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. But then I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. And onto this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already on the safe, on the, who were already safe on the platform, were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who'd been rescued, industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences, in their passion to rescue those who were perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me the most, the sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks and reaching a place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in their effort for the deliverance of others. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. But only a very few seemed to make it their business to get people out of the sea. 
But what puzzled me most was the fact that although all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people didn't even seem to have any care. That is, not any agonizing care about the poor perishing ones who are struggling and drowning right before their very eyes many of whom were their own husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and even their own children. Now this astonishing unconcern couldn't have been the result of ignorance or lack of knowledge because they lived right there in full sight of it all and they even talked about it sometimes. Many even went regularly to hear lectures and sermons in which the awful state of those poor drowning creatures was described. He goes on, but I think we get the point. Uh, Richard Phillips wrote a book on uh, Jonah, a commentary, and uh, these are some of his last words. The great need of our world today is a legion of Jonahs, fresh with the awareness of God's grace in their own lives, who call out to the world the same message of grace that they have received. God will and must judge the wickedness of the world. God will and must visit your sins with the fire of his wrath. Yet he sent his own son into this world to bear the sins of those who believe. This is the message that Christian pulpits must preach. This is the witness that Christian lives must present. In this respect, the ministry of Jonah stands as a perpetual encouragement to preaching the gospel of Christ. I think that is a pretty good place for us to end our series in Jonah. Salvation belongs to the world, to the Lord. He's the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He's the gracious God who is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So may God humble us as a church and as individuals before his great majesty so that we fear him as we should, so that we turn from our idols as we should. Not just say that we fear him, but that we actually fear him. And then may he fill our hearts with his compassion so that we don't just talk about it with one another, but we go and make disciples of all nations to his glory. Here in St. Andrews, wherever he takes you, and some of you may be deliberately setting aside your life to travel somewhere else in the world or stay here and tell people all about him. Let's pray together. We want to thank you again for your great love. Almighty God, thank you that you so loved the world that you sent your one and only son to die on the cross so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank you for your love. We thank you that your love is great enough that anyone here or anyone watching at home could turn to you now in repentance and faith, recognizing Jesus as their Lord, claiming the forgiveness that he won on the cross 
and they would be welcomed back into your arms of love, almighty God, and into relationship with you as Father. We thank you for your abundant and steadfast love. We thank you for your patience with us. Those of us who know a lot about what you are like, but whose hearts are often cold to others. And we pray that you might change our hearts, that your love and your compassion might fill us and overflow so that we might be a means as individuals and as a church to others coming to know the same love and grace that has saved us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close.